Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and co-host, at least for part of this episode, coming to you live from a hotel room in Germany. How are you, Mr. O'Toole? It is great to be alive um, after a long flight to Frankfurt. Tim is here, spry and sleep deprived, ready to give some hot takes on uh, new developments that just came in over the weekend. Um, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're doing this a little differently today, in part because of some big events that have just transpired in the last couple of days. So what we did was we actually recorded on Friday, uh, May uh, 6th, 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 and we today. recorded a full episode, which was ready to go. And then, of course, on Sunday, May 8th, OFAC had um, the kind um, decided out of the kindness of their heart to drop a couple of um, big new announcements and developments on us relating to Russia. So we're going to start with that. We're going to do a quick, a quick um, few takes on what happened over the weekend uh, with respect to Russia and the new determinations that were announced on Sunday. And then we're just going to segue into all of the previously recorded content. So this is a, a little um, trick of editing genius from our friends uh matt and anthony and we will uh we will go from there it's an emergency uh, podcast this is a bit of an emergency uh supplement to our pre our prior uh what we recorded previously so um without further delay um the normal caveats to start we're not giving legal advice we're not discussing confidential information anything you hear today uh, is solely attributable to me and or Tim. Blame us if you disagree or dislike. Uh, you can find Embargoed anywhere you get your pod content. Please subscribe if you enjoy the pod. Please uh, give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating, and spread the word. Um, he, so here is the roadmap for today. As I already said, the new lead topic is going to be the uh, latest OFAC announcements on uh, one day in advance of Victory Day in Russia uh, on May 8th. Um, specifically the, the two new determinations that came out relating to the accounting, trust, corporate formation, and uh, management consulting services sectors. Uh, then we're going to go into um, uh, some recent remarks by Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, about the fact that sanctions are the new FCPA. Uh, then we're going to look a little bit at China and Russia uh, and how the, the interplay there and how the U.S. is um, responding to that. Uh, then we're going to um, we're going to go to the new Russia Ukraine um, or Ukraine Russia related sanctions regulations, which were just released or re-released, uh, amended and expanded. We'll talk about that briefly, and then the lightning round. We're going to probably wrap up for all time our discussion of Virgil Griffith's case by talking about the indictments announced against his two co-conspirators, and uh, finally bring it home with a quick bit on Nicaragua and a tiny bit on Venezuela as well. So with that, let's jump right in. Um, so the new topic, number one, over the weekend, as I said, a day in advance of Victory Day in Russia, uh, OFAC made a, a major announcement. So there was a long list of designations announced on Sunday, uh, middle of the day Sunday. Uh, this is not when we're typically have our radar up uh, looking for new, big new uh, OFAC announcements, but um, but be that as it may, this is the way it played out over the weekend. Um, so big list of designations that were announced and two new determinations that were made. The first with respect to EO14024, which now um, makes the, um, again, this, the sectors that I mentioned earlier, the accounting, trust, and corporate formation services and management consulting sectors of the Russian Federation economy are now all um identified pursuant to 14024 so any persons operating in those sectors or who have operated in those sectors are now fair game to be designated and that is effective immediately um so that was number one but point number two the related point which quite frankly is i think the bigger point for those of us here in the u.s under executive order 14071 which we we teased this when we discussed it the last time that we were very eager to see what um, what services were going to be targeted first by the U.S. And now we know um, there is a determination that was issued under 14071, which now means um, that the following is prohibited. Um, the exportation, re-exportation, sale or supply 
directly or indirectly from the U.S. or by a United States person, wherever located, of accounting, trust and corporate formation, or management consulting services to any person located in the Russian Federation. There's a couple of carve-outs, including with respect to entities in Russia that are under control directly or indirectly by U.S. persons, uh, and certain services related to wind-down or divestiture activities. But that is pretty broad. And um, two notes on that. Number one, this, these prohibitions don't go into effect for 30 days. So it's June June 6th, I believe, is the, is the effective date. I think it's the 7th. Date. June 7th. I'm 7th. sorry. June 7th. My math was off. June 7th. And then, so June 7th, these, th these go into effect. And then there's also a GL that's already been issued, which is going to provide a 30-day wind-down period thereafter. So we're talking about July 7th, effectively, as the end date. Uh, it's sort of a 60-day window when all of this will take full force. Um, the other interesting thing is, and for those who are tracking this globally, this is somewhat similar to what the EU announced um, a few weeks back. Um, it's a it's a little different, but some but in the same vein as what the EU announced and and has also been adopted. I know in Switzerland, um, and so but OFAC has given um, some guidance, uh, hopefully along with this in the form of some FAQs. And what is clear from the FAQs, if you look at the definition, I'm not going to read this, but if you look at the definition of accounting services, trust and corporate formation services, management consulting services, these categories are pretty broad. They are, they are quite broad. Um, and they're also clear that uh, the guidance is also clear that these apply to all U.S. persons. So it's not just um, persons who are sort of in those specific niche areas or defined areas, you know, accountants or trust trust services companies or management consulting companies, what have you. Um, lawyers, for example, I'm certain are, are going to be impacted by this and, and a number of other uh, folks who are doing work um, relating to Russia in these areas. Um, and obviously the, you know, the, the idea here, the theory behind this is that this is a, these, these services are essential to uh, the so-called oligarchs and other sanctioned Russian parties uh, and, you know, Putin cronies and et cetera, et cetera, of sort of hiding and, um, you know, growing their assets in kind of in plain sight with the help of U.S. persons. And so this is designed to cut that off, obviously. And so, um, so again, this is a pretty, this is going to be a pretty big deal. And I think implementation and navigating this and how people sort of step away from all of this is going to be complicated in the next 60 days. So let me just pause there and let me throw it over to you, Mr. O'Toole. What are your having, um, you know, not even 48 hours to think about this being um, having the the benefit of uh, being delirious after an overnight flight. Uh, perhaps that has has rattled around some some uh, strands of genius in your brain. What are your what are your new thoughts on this uh, today? Well, first, uh, it's this is the, these thoughts are given in the spirit of NATO cooperation, since I am in a, a fellow NATO country overseas, and and that is you know one of the themes of the entire new Russian harmful foreign activities program is that everything is coordinated, and this was coordinated. I mean, as you pointed out, Brian, I mean this is this these these are these are categories of services that the EU has already gone after. Um, I, you know, I guess my my biggest and I guess my second point is we did not predict this. I, I, I think when we often we often do predict things before they happen. This one we did not predict at all. I think we took a stab at predicting which which services would be first. These were not on our list. And so that's that's really my question, and I don't really have a real answer to it is why why these first? I, I assume that, um, and again, I don't have an answer, but I'm I'm still gonna give an opinion. Um, I'm assuming that uh, OFAC and or the State Department and or the Allies had some information that there was kind of widespread uh, activity going on in Russia with respect to these sorts of services um, being used to move around assets or being used to potentially hide assets, and that that was that was the reason that it happened. A on a Sunday, although I, I I think your point is actually a very good one as well. That it's probably it was probably in advance of May 9th as well. But but I think part of the, I mean the fact that it happened on a Sunday. I mean we don't often see OFAC programs or determinations come out on a Sunday with respect to this sort of thing. And so I'm I'm assuming that there was some sort of emergency going on. 
um, that they or they felt there was an emergency with respect to these services and that they had to shut them down immediately. And, and but but having said that, if you have to shut them down immediately, then why do you give a 60-day period to essentially let them wind down? So that could be completely wrong. But if it is wrong, then I have no real answer to the question of why these first and why on a Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the um, I do think that sort of we say this a lot that there's sort of a you know, a, a marketing angle to the way these things get rolled out, right? You're kind of getting more bang for your buck if you if you announce something on an anniversary or 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 whatever the case may be. And so, I do think this is all calibrated, or was kind of, uh, te- you know, it was there was I think the designation package was ready to go because it was sort of, you know, military focused uh, and and targeted to May 9th. and then this is a, I think a convenient add-on, which quite frankly, hasn't you know, at least in the broader press, hasn't seemed to get a ton of attention yet. I mean, I know in the trade nerd community, this is this is stirring up a lot of discussion, but certainly in the broader press, I don't I don't think this was sort of the final bit of the press release was talking about this, you know, sweeping new action. But I don't I, I think, you know, it's not it's probably not abundantly clear to people what this might mean in practice. So over the course of the next 60 days, we will see. I agree that I think it became, you know, in the way that we are seeing, we have seen more act, activity out of what we're you know, talk about this in a moment with the sanctions of the new FCPA, with uh, you know the Klepto Capture Task Force and the Reach, Repo task, task Force and some of these other efforts around the globe to um, hunt and seize uh, you know ill-gotten gains or or at least alleged ill-gotten gains of of these various um, you know sanctioned parties uh, that are affiliated with with the Russian uh, Federation or the Russian government. Um, this is sort of of a piece with that, I think. And so it does, in some ways, it does make sense that this is maybe the natural extension. And perhaps we should have known better since our friends in Europe had taken this step um, initially that maybe the U.S. would uh, take this step as well. Although it's, I think, more well, it's just more well known and well understood that these are perhaps services that are more heavily relied upon by these, by Russian nationals and by these types of um you know, again, so-called oligarchs in certain European countries. Um, that's not to say that it doesn't happen here, but um, I w- that's why we had our money on the energy sector or sort of more broadly speaking, I guess, the financial services sector as opposed to sort of this, you know, which is somewhat a subset of the financial services sector, I guess you could you could argue, but it's not not exactly. So in all events, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of first salvo with the um, services prohibitions under 14071 um and yeah it's this will be interesting because i mean this is this is fairly unprecedented in terms of the type of the type of sanction that is about to go into effect here and the type of prohibitions that are now going to apply to us persons and are going to apply they have not yet you know they i what i read there was um you know from the faq they they of course promise that there's going to be regs that will follow we'll see how long it takes them to do that that often takes a while they did say that for purposes of the determination under 14071 ofac anticipates publishing regulations defining the term russian person to mean an individual who's a citizen or national of the russian federation or an entity organized under the laws of the russian federation so if that is the case um you know again that's 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 quite broad and that and that takes into account russian russian persons who are not going to be actually in russia um, so that is, you know, as a compliance matter and as, um, you know, that's going to, that's going to be challenging, I think, to, to sort of navigate. Yeah. I mean, that's in line with the reporting that this was targeted at the, at the oligarchs. And so, so, you know, the fact that the, that person in the Russian Federation is going to include persons who are not actually in the Russian Federation, um, is not surprising from that. I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what's going on here, though, because on the one hand, you know, these the the the, the new sanctions on export or the the export sanctions or export controls, whatever you want to call them, um, they 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 really do go much more broadly than hiding assets, right? I mean, they take out accounting, management, consulting services, and trust services from the entire they take them off the board. So all sorts of legitimate services as well are are taken off the board. If if OFAC wanted to target, you know, use of those services to hide assets, they could have easily done that. I mean, they could have made it, you know, a, a limited 
prohibition that was that was targeting evasion and they didn't do that and so i and so you know the the big four accountants everybody from the west is going to have to get out of russia but then it gets even worse and i think that's what and, and worse or more strict depends on your perspective but um the the 14024 sanction then makes it impossible for russian professionals to to carry out these services as well within within russia without risking some sort of us sanction now how how serious that sort of sanction is for you know professionals acting within russia when there's also a law that would make it criminal for them to withhold their services on the basis of sanctions you know is a, is a different question but but basically what these sanctions have tried to do is shut down that entire sector of professional services in Russia and and certainly force anybody with a US nexus from to get out of Russia and even within Russia you've still got some sanctions US sanctions risk if you continue to provide those services it's really a huge huge kind of attack on those services both inside and outside of Russia. And I'm, I'm just wondering why that is. We've never seen it, at least I don't remember it in any other program. You know, one other, one sort of maybe final interesting point that you, that you just came to mind as you were talking about 14024 and the new determination there. We've talked before about the idea that what it means to be part of the sector, a certain sector of a certain country's economy with respect to Russia or Belarus or some of these other countries that have now been targeted in this way uh, and whether or not you could actually be physically outside of the country and still be part of the sector of that economy, right? And so right. it'll be interesting to see. And again, this would this would not really this would not really align with the general um, approach on secondary sanctions, which again we're going to talk about later when we talk about the new Ukraine Russia um, sanctions regulations and and what that means for Katsa two two eight, but. Um, you know, in theory, if there was somebody sitting in Europe who was providing these services to a bunch of clients in Russia, would that person be susceptible to being designated under the new 14024 determination? I would, I would think possibly yes, right? I mean, if they are, if they're seen as part of that sector of the Russian economy, even if they are physically outside of. So we don't usually think about it as, as you know, physically elsewhere. It's usually confined to persons in the country but if if there were if there were actors that are outside that are sort of still actively supporting those sectors you know and that came to effect's attention I would I would think they will reserve the right to say yeah that's fair game and we could designate that person on that basis. Oh, completely. If if the EU or or any of the the NATO countries decide really not to enforce their own sanctions on this issue, I think the U.S. would reserve the right to do it. But I think that it's more targeted at countries like China, right. um, other countries to essentially say and and don't come in and try and fill this void because you'll be operating in the Russian management services sector or management right. consulting sector and and we'll we'll designate you for that right yeah agreed okay so this is a fascinating one and a and potentially a big deal and obviously there's 60 days for this to sort of take effect and and for the gl to expire and so um you know we'll we'll i'm sure come back to this in the future but we did want to uh start here because uh you know this is a pretty significant new development and so with that i will throw it to myself to talk about the new topic number two um so for those who haven't seen this um this this made a little made a little bit of news made a little bit of a splash uh, about a week ago um the deputy attorney general lisa monaco was in new york for a day's worth of appearances and and uh speeches and she gave some remarks at a new york city bar association event uh white collar event and she said and i'm paraphrasing here um, in talking about some of the department's enforcement priorities, actually, I have the quote here that was in, I think this is reported as reported in the Wall Street Journal. She said to the room full of white collar enforcement lawyers, um, she was sort of prefacing or, or leading into the fact that national security related considerations are playing more of a part than ever, perhaps in the department's white collar enforcement priorities. And she said, one way to think about this is as sanctions being the new FCPA. Um, we've sort of paraphrased or we reworked that as sanctions are the new FCPA, um, which we, which we like. And so there was a lot of press coverage about, around this, and uh, I'm going to throw this open to Tim in a moment, but I will say, so again, you know, 
hats off to Lisa Monaco for for sort of putting this out there and being the senior most uh, DOJ or, or government official to kind of make this connection. This has certainly been a tagline or a pitch line or a, or kind of a you know summation I think of the trend for quite some time. I've certainly uttered this. I I'm certainly not going to take credit for this. Others have I've heard others utter this uh, over the last several years. I think it sort of neatly sums up um, the way things you know we we have recognized and and live every day day in, day out, year in, year out, the way things have been kind of trending. Um, but I think it is notable, obviously, for the second most senior official at the Justice Department to make this um, explicit uh, analogy or connection and to really put a marker down that this is perhaps a new era or a, an inflection point for uh, you know, sanctions and export controls uh, and national security focused enforcement in the U.S. Um, obviously, this builds upon some things that we've talked about previously, some of the remarks that were made both by Lisa Monaco and and her her number two, um, uh, John Carlin last year, sort of putting this out there and, and sort of setting the stage for this. I think, I think now, obviously, it makes some sense that she is perhaps doubling down on this position or this view, given everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Um, the you know klepto capture task force, the repo task force, all of the efforts that the department is throwing behind trying to vigorously enforce uh, U.S. sanctions laws and related you know money laundering laws and other laws that are out there to to try to thwart um, you know the sanctioned Russian and other parties out there who are trying to evade sanctions. So. Anyway, I will pause there. I'll throw it to you. What do you make of this? Is this a big deal? Is it not a big deal? Is it just kind of a, again, sort of a convenient time to to sort of shine a light on something that's really been going on in in large part for quite a while? Or what do you what do you make of all this, Mr. O'Toole? So, Mr. Fleming, I think that you you're exactly right that the stage has been set for this for at least the last few months, probably the last year where where uh, DOJ and the criminal side have been talking about a national security focus, lots of news events to push that. But at the end of the day, I think this is getting back to our constant theme for the last you know six months or so. All roads lead to Moscow. I mean, even as she announced this, one of the, what I was struck by was that she pivoted almost immediately to, and you, you better comply with the Russian sanctions. It's really important. It's going to be a really big enforcement priority for us. And I, I, I think we're already starting to see some of that. I mean, the, the, in my view, one of the things that we've seen that has been relatively unprecedented is the way that uh, the Commerce Department has aggressively enforced some of the export controls laws with respect to the uh, to airplanes in particular, but um, just generally, I I'm seeing just such a heightened enforcement climate in Russia. It's a little bit similar to what we were seeing in China during the Trump administration, but I think like China on steroids would be a way to look at it. And so, so I think at the end of the day, it's an important announcement, not surprising in and of itself, but I think it has a lot to do with Russia. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make, I agree with that. I'm going to, so two, two follow-on points. Number one, if loyal listeners of Embargoed will know that, you know, despite the level of activity that we saw out of the Trump administration era, OFAC and BIS in particular, which is lots of additions to the entity list, lots of additions to the SDN list, touting the fact that there are more people that have been more entities that have been added than ever before. We didn't actually see, to my mind, and, and I don't have the hard data in front of me, but I don't believe there was really a discernible difference in terms of the back end enforcement there, right? How many more, how many more settlements or how many more enforcement penalties are we, were we really seeing during that era relating to conduct with those countries or those entities? I don't know that we were necessarily, we were seeing a lot of people thrown on lists, which, you know, that is obviously a powerful tool and something that us enforcers and regulators want to deploy kind of to, you know, strategically into as, you know, maximum effect. Uh, at any given time, but we didn't necessarily see the back end piece of that. I think we are seeing both right now. And I think that is to Tim's point, you know, with all with, again, op, you know, the sort of klepto capture task force and and the worldwide effort to try to seize assets that are, you know, 
argue that are you know being alleged to be the proceeds of money laundering activities or are benefiting from sanctions evasion and et cetera. Um, I do think we are seeing a little bit of a squeeze now from both direct from multiple directions in a way that we haven't before. So I do think that that's one notable thing. The other thing that I would say is um, if you look at the DOJ summary of Lisa Monaco's remarks, which is the uh, the readout of the of uh, you know Dag Monaco's um, trip to New York, they they make special care to say to summarize her remarks and then say she stressed that it's critically important for financial institutions and international corporations alike to pay close attention to the Russia sanctions to to build on what Tim said. That doesn't get into the readout unless that is a critically important sort of talking point and enforcement priority for, you know, the for the DOJ writ large, for the criminal division, for national security division. So I do think, and I mean, to, to people who follow this all the time, that's kind of a that's kind of a painfully obvious thing that that we wouldn't we would hope not too many people out there who are in financial institutions or multinational corporations are going to be all that surprised by. But it is notable that they, those segments in particular, those audiences are being called out specifically in connection with this announcement. So I do think that that means something. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I will say, you know, both of us work with a lot of financial institutions and multinational corporations. And, and I can say uh, very explicitly and emphatically that it has become, it is certainly on the radar screens of the clients that we've talked to, including many clients for whom it may not have been on the radar screen uh, prior to this this round or, or to the February uh, 2022 Russian sanctions. So it is, it's a big deal. It's getting a lot of attention. I think that um, Lisa Monaco's statements will cause it to get even more attention. It was, you're right, it was highlighted by DOJ in the readout. And so, um, you know, we will we will continue to see and hear more about the Russian sanctions issues, but but to your point about the Trump administration and about the the level of enforcement there, I think that both both you know the Biden administration and the Trump administration, Biden with Russia, Trump with China, um, have done a good job of announcing and getting the word out about their sanctions. But I certainly feel like I'm seeing a lot more enforcement activity already on the Russia side than we ever really did on the China side. Um, and, and you know, setting aside some of the crazy enforcement actions that got overturned in court at the end of the Trump administration, there was a lot of enforcement type activity where, you know, the Trump administration was trying to essentially force a sale of TikTok and pocket some of the proceeds. But apart from that, you didn't see a lot of kind of traditional enforcement activity where you've got agents out on the ground trying to enforce these laws. And here we're already seeing quite a bit of that. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a little bit more of a put your money where your mouth is. It's not just, you know, lists and names and words. It's it's let's let's get people let's get law enforcement out there actually trying to, you know, follow up on this and and uh, you know, exact some pain on the on the targets of these things. So, agree with all that. So let's let's leave that behind for the moment. Let's pivot over to China, um, and to talk a little bit more about China and Russia and sort of an interesting little article that just came out a couple of days ago that um, sort of perhaps shed some light on the current U.S. views on on what China is or is not doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Yeah. So at the beginning of the conflict and, and when the NATO countries and, and you know, NATO allies imposed what were pretty unprecedented sanctions and targeted uh, the Russian financial industry in a way that we've never really seen before. One of the one of the fears that was expressed or one of the concerns that was expressed by some of the U.S. policymakers, by policymakers over in Europe was that um the, the Russians would be able to circumvent these sanctions by essentially locking on to the Chinese financial system and the Chinese would allow their financial system uh, to be used in ways that would allow that would that would dilute the effect of the sanctions if not kind of blunt them altogether. And at the beginning of the conflict we started to see some signs of this, but more recently uh, it, they really haven't been apparent. China's support for the war, 
um, seems to have diminished, at least from outsiders. And then on May 3rd, Reuters did an article quoting um, members of the U.S. government, you know, anonymously mostly, but still uh, talking about how those fears have not really come to pass. And in fact, you know, China abstained from the U.N. resolutions condemning Russia. China does not appear to be engaging in at least systematic sanctions evasion activities, certainly using their financial, allowing their financial system to be used to circumvent the, the sanctions on um, many of the larger Russian banks. And so what we're seeing now and what the article seems to confirm is that Russia is not kind of getting the out through China that, that they thought they did. The article goes on to talk about the fact that China is not supporting Russia militarily either, but I, I'm not sure that was ever really a realistic fear. I think the real fear was that China was going to um, help with sanctions evasion because you know, it's not, Russia would not be the first country where China has done that, at least reportedly. I mean, you've got a lot of reports that, that China has helped circumvent North Korea sanctions, that China has helped circumvent Iran sanctions. China expressly has talked about how it thinks the sanctions, even these sanctions, are illegal and does not believe they should be enforced. And so it wouldn't have been surprising if China had gone in the other direction, but it appears not to have, at least so far. Right. I, so a couple of quick follow-on observations there. I think it's you know, the the abstaining from the UN vote was characterized in the article as a win. Um, and uh, I would say, though, that the article goes on to note, and, I, and anybody who's tracking this will know this, that, you know, the rhetoric coming out of China and China state-run media is still largely parroting what Moscow was saying about the war. And it's not exactly, um, you know, there's not much divergence there. So I think the idea that there's still some alignment, if not as much perhaps um, explicit support is, is I think, a fair characterization at this point. I also think that my takeaway from this, and, and that's not just from this article, but just from everything that we've been seeing the first couple of months of the conflict, is that, you know, China has been characterized by many observers as, you know, look, they're kind of the ultimate opportunists, right? And so if they are seeing which way the wind is blowing with respect to Russia, which is the sense, which is that Russia has become more and more isolated as this has grown, grown on, uh, dragged on rather. And, um, you know, coming out as a vocal champion of Russia is not going to, in the big picture, be helpful for China. It's no surprise that they're not doing that at the moment. Um, it's also perhaps no surprise that at least at the moment, it doesn't seem that with some of the um, as Tim said, the sort of the big, um, you know, crushing sanctions that have been levied against the uh, the Russian financial sector that they haven't necessarily swooped in to kind of bail them out. Now, as we've talked about before, when Russia's about to start defaulting on its on its debt, and if and when we get to the point where the Russian energy sector is more critically impaired by the sanctions, Exhibit A. Europe about to impose, a, you know, uh, an embargo on Russian oil, uh, which is something that is just about to, it looks like it's just about to finally come to be and come to pass. And so two months, three months, six months from now, when Russia has all these reserves of oil and China is the perhaps only or the best or the most immediate sort of willing buyer of all of that, you know, and who knows what the state of sanctions will be with respect to some of the biggest Russian you know, oil companies at that point, let's see how well they they are behaving with respect to, you know, uh, abiding by the Western sanctions on on uh, Russia. So I, I think this is an it's an interesting snapshot right now is kind of my general takeaway. I don't think anybody should be fooled into thinking that we're, you know, the U.S. or anybody else is out of the woods with respect to China kind of putting their their finger or their hand or their arm on the scale in, you know, on the side of Russia. Here and perhaps you know making this a much more complex and messy situation somewhere down the road. But I think for the moment, that's you know as 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 we discussed, I think that's kind of where things stand and where it goes from here. It's hard to say, but I think that that's at least a, a, snap, a good snapshot for now. 
Yeah, I agree. The one thing that the article really didn't talk about and that occurred to me as I was reading it is I, I wonder whether any of this has to do with what China's going through right now. I mean, China right. has its own issues with COVID right now. It's it's about the worst that it's been since the beginning in, in Wuhan. And so, you know, is China's reluctance based on, you know, a fear of the threat of U.S. retribution? Is it because the war isn't going well, or is it because China's kind of tied up dealing with its own COVID problems, but once it presumably overcomes that and, and moves beyond it, does it turn towards kind of helping out Russia um, evade sanctions, supporting the Russian military effort? Does it become more aggressive after it, it gets kind of out of the COVID fog? Well, in particular, yeah, and in particular, I think that's a really good point, in particular, to the extent that evading sanctions will help re you know sort of reinvigorate or jumpstart the Chinese economy, which is now by all reports kind of going into a lull as a result of all the COVID related shutdowns. I think we have to presume that they are going to act in whatever they believe is their economic self-interest. And if they think that that is the way out, then that's probably what they will do. And then that may, we may be crosswise with China before too long if that is, if that is in fact, the way things play out. But, you know, we, we will see uh, again. I think this is a an interesting snapshot for the moment. N in no way, shape or form should this be considered to be set in stone for the foreseeable future. So um, so let's move on now to actually our final topic of the main portion of the of the episode today. So we are we are flying by our standards. And and this is um, and it, don't mistake that for the lightning round sound effect. Um, this is this is in fact um, an all Russia topic, and so just uh, last week, um, a new version of the what had previously been the Ukraine sanctions regulations, which were issued several years ago, were updated and expanded and rebranded as the Ukraine Russia related sanctions regulations. They just were published in the Federal Register earlier this week. We're recording this on Friday, May six. They just were published on, I believe it was Monday. And, um, you, you know, so by, you know, the issuance of new regulations is not usually a terribly noteworthy thing because most of the time it just codifies what's in the ex existing executive orders. But but this actually covers quite a bit of ground. I think the regulations are, are fairly expansive, um, especially compared to what was there previously and, and kind of consolidates a lot of um, guidance and a lot of moving parts because obviously the Russia sanctions program is multifaceted and has been stood up via uh, statutes and executive orders and all kinds of authorities over a number of years and for a number of different reasons. So it's a little messy and now it's much of that's now been consolidated in the new regs. We want to talk about sort of two, two things in particular. One, which is a topic that I think over the years, Tim and I have spent a lot of time thinking and talking to folks about and, you know, I think has presented itself recently in, in kind of an interesting way. We talked originally when the, the new um, wave of sanctions were being announced in late February, early March about how it was notable to our to our mind that there was not really any talk about secondary sanctions, Katsa, or in particular Katsa Section 228, which is for anybody out there who is a, a tried and true trade nerd knows is kind of the the broadest of the secondary sanctions provisions uh, and applies to uh, potentially sweep up any conduct by foreign persons that um, facilitates uh, or relates to significant transactions on behalf of um, persons subject to sanctions imposed with respect to the Russian Federation. So that's a key a key um, term there. And, and a few other a few other um, sort of elements to that as well, but that's kind of the you know the significant transaction and the person subject to sanctions imposed with respect to the Russian Federation. That's kind of always been the the linchpin of that and the thing that non-U.S. persons, non-U.S. companies in particular, have lived in fear of since Katza was um, enacted in 2017. And, uh, you know, the the guidance, the FAQ guidance relating to significant transactions came out a little while after that. And so many, many, as we can attest, and as anybody out there who's ever looked at this knows, many, many, many companies, I think, over the years have been deterred from uh, entering into certain transactions or engaging in certain transactions with um, 
sanctioned parties in Russia for fear that they would run afoul of COTSA Section 228. So more recently, when the new wave of sanctions came out and was largely being issued under EO 14024, the question arose whether or not persons that are sanctioned under 14024 would be considered persons subject to sanctions imposed with respect to the Russian Federation and thereby implicate Katsa 228. Well, it appears we have our answer. And it appears that as indicated in the regs themselves and the supporting um, FAQs, notably the updated FAQ 546, that it does not cover persons sanctioned under 14024. It appears that the definition of that term, person subject to sanctions imposed by the U.S. with respect to the Russian Federation, is limited to persons that are that are subject to sanctions under the Crimea-related executive orders, you know, 13660 and series that were issued later that year, um, and um, and also the executive order that touches on the cyber EO um, that was issued. Um, around that same time. Um, and that's it. It does not, it appears to leave out purposefully 14024. So it seems, and this was, and we know, um, and I know that we have gotten a number of questions about this in the last couple months. And in fact, I know that this is an issue that has been raised to OFAC pretty recently. And until these these um, this guidance came out and the new regs came out, they had kind of demurred on confirming or denying whether or not COTSA Section 228 would in fact cover people that were in entities that were um, sanctioned under 14024. So now it appears, appears that, um, again, not legal advice. If you actually need us to look at this, please call, please email. But the at first at first blush it appears that that is carved out that that is is uh, outside the scope of what is is under this so let me throw it to you Mr. O'Toole thoughts comments reactions to that well I mean we we expected this I think we did talk about it on at least one of the podcasts and it, it did seem very intentional that OFAC and that the president had not cited Takatsa as an authority for Executive Order 14024 or really any of the executive orders in the Russian harmful, what is it, harmful foreign, foreign activities, activities. Yeah. sanctions. Yeah. Um, so, so we expected it. I, I still, you know, think there are some issues there. I mean, the the, the statutory language is that these it's secondary pretty, pretty sanctions straightforward. should apply to any person quote subject to sanctions imposed by the United States with respect to the Russian Federation. It's it's really hard to argue. I, you know, and, and and at some point we may have to do it. So I'm not going to say it's impossible to argue, but it's it is a it's an uphill battle to explain why it is that um, that persons that are subject to sanctions under these more recent executive orders that were directly targeting the Russian Federation are not subject to sanctions imposed by the United States with respect to the Russian Federation. But hey, if OFAC wants to take that position. It, it can take that position. And, and again, it was pretty clear to us beforehand that that's what they were trying to do. And now they've made it express that that is what those terms mean. And so I, what what I think, you know, when you step back from it, what appears to really be going on here is that the, the administration has done what I believe to be a, a, a historically good job of marshalling a coalition of diverse interests among the NATO countries to really impose some very effective sanctions in a, in a very unilateral way. And, and I mean that by saying you've got a big group of countries, so it's multilateral in that sense, but they're speaking with one voice and that's what's unprecedented about it. They really are moving forward in this way. And I, and I suspect that at the beginning of the process, one of the things that the allies expressed to the administration was their extreme distaste for secondary sanctions. Europe hates secondary sanctions and understandably so. They are sanctions that are applied to, to situations where the U.S. admittedly has no jurisdiction. They're non-U.S. transactions, and, and European sanctions have traditionally been focused entirely on conduct over which Europe does have jurisdiction. And so essentially, the stay-in-your-lane policy was adopted at the beginning of this. 
that is very tricky given the language of of CATSA that does say that that the secondary sanctions apply in the circumstances that that we both just read. But I think that that was part of the bargain, and I think the administration is adhering to its bargain, and I I think it's a good bargain. I think it's just difficult to reconcile with CATSA. I suspect that if the, if they were ever asked, you know, and given truth serum so that they had to to explain it honestly and candidly. That their their defense of this position would be that CATSA is is an unconstitutional usurpation of executive power by Congress with respect to national security, and that Congress really can't tell them how to carry out foreign policy, and that this coalition is a good reason why, because the president needs some flexibility in order to impose these sanctions in a way that protects national security and protects and promotes foreign policy, and so that they claim that it is part of the president's um, you know. Uh, Article to executive powers, and the Congress essentially try to usurp it in CATSA. That they're obviously not stating that out loud. Although I I believe that President Trump said something like that in his signing statement. So that's not a, a new theory. But I I would guess that if they ever had to fight it out, that that would be their theory. But I don't think they're trying to pick a fight with Congress over this. Yeah, interestingly, the party that might be harmed by this arguably would be Congress because it seems that it's sort of it's kind of cutting them off at the knees by. Um, interpreting it this way. And so, you know, even just thinking through who would it be that would ever challenge this more restrictive interpretation, which I think undeniably is beneficial to the sort of regulated world to have it uh, kind of truncated or limited in this way. Uh, and I don't know, unless there was some shift in opinion over time and, or or a misunderstanding as to what this does cover and some and they and they come after somebody for arguably running afoul of something that seems to be uh, not contemplated by by the regs and by the scope of this. So so I don't know. Um, it is also worth bearing in mind that, as we've said a few times before, COTSA Section 228 is supposed, supposedly imposes mandatory sanctions, right. which have, in fact, never been imposed on anybody for this type of conduct. And, you know, so the idea of mandatory sanctions being uh, limited in this way when at the end of the day, the president and treasury have a lot of discretion to who, who it is they identify to be targeted by those mandatory sanctions is, you know, another sort of interesting academic exercise in its own right. But um, but in any event, I think that's it's an interesting and, and honestly, I don't I don't know that I've seen much said or written about this yet. Um, it's only been a few days. so. Um, you know, I'm not sure if if the world was kind of already on, um, you know, held our view that this that it probably didn't extend to one four two four based on the signaling, or if, as Tim has said, it's just not at the moment a very big practical problem because the U.S. is clearly signaling. I think that they're not they're not looking to enforce or go after, in particular, companies who are headquartered in allied countries for for this type of conduct because they're trusting that allies are kind of taking care of their own their own houses so to speak with respect to this this type of thing yeah i mean i i do think it's it seems unlikely that we'll ever get into this this debate in court because you're right brian i i don't see who's the party that brings who's going to ever get harmed to bring the lawsuit because you know the 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 only party that's really harmed is Congress in this sense. Um, but but even there, it's hard to argue that Congress is harmed because right. it seems to be a core executive branch power to execute the laws, to enforce the laws. And, and here, the executive is determining how it is that they're going to enforce the, the laws, um, despite the statutory language that tells them what they have to do in the enforcement context. It's still the executive discretion is is kind of rule it, it appears to be winning out and and not surprised over that right i agree with that so so with that there's really only one other thing i was going to flag which is a, a very sort of narrow point that i'll just sort of throw out there and i don't know that there's really that much to say about this other than to say that for those in the in the energy industry especially um in the oil production industry there was a, a shift in the definition of what a shale project is under the regs. And this is obviously something that has been dating back to when Directive 4 came out 
a number of years ago that was it this was defined and i believe it was the same it was the same faq 418 that was used to clarify what the definition of a shell project was and now it has been it has been tweaked a little bit and now it the new um definition says that uh it's defined under the new regs to include um projects that have the potential to produce oil from resources located in shale formations, which has always been the case, as well as projects that have the potential to produce oil from resources located in fine-grained sedimentary rock formations, including shale, limestone, dolomites, sandstone, and clay. So that is something that's a little different. I know from some of our friends who are very close to, you know, clients and otherwise who are, who are sort of very close to the more operational side of uh, oil producing uh, and companies that support oil production, that is, this is a, a pretty big deal. And so we just sort of throw that out there and flag that change for anybody who might not have seen that. Any big yeah, comments I, on that, Tim? Did you know, I, I, I really do, I don't, I mean, I, I think it was intended as an expansion, but, yep, right. um, you know, my, my, uh, my, my degree in, uh, oil engineering is is relatively stale and so my ability to comment on that is is pretty limited and, other than to say that it's it's another expansion of the sanctions yeah, and, and, and i, I can't and, tell how broad it is going well to be, and quite but. quite frankly given what we know about the um impact that the sanctions are having kind of at a at a macro level with respect to any u.s um companies that are staying involved in Russian energy and oil projects, in particular those that might be subject to Directive 4, query what the actual impact is going to be here, because there may, I suspect that there may be plenty of companies who could be impacted by this if they elected to stay, but perhaps have already decided they were not going right. to stay. Um, so I mean, I, that's hard to know the, right now, but that that I think is another practical thing I would just throw out there. Yeah, I guess the other impact, and, and I haven't looked closely enough to know how how real this is, is that because Directive 4 now applies to projects outside of Russia, I, I suspect that that could be the real impact, is, is, is if there are projects outside of Russia that didn't meet the definition of shale before, but to meet it now, those would be the ones that would be impacted. Because I don't think, at least as of now, that Western companies are out of dealing with Russian energy companies. They're just not doing it in Russia because of all the restrictions in Russia. But but th that's this could point. change that. that that's the only effect. Yep. Well, and that's that. I'm relying for that on my my Earth Sciences class that I, I took in college <laughs> that was affectionately known as as rocks for jocks. Um, and so that's the extent of my my understanding of the. Um, amazingly enough, here. amazingly enough, this, the the Earth Sciences class I took at a at a different undergrad university was or college rather sorry was uh ter term the same thing <laughs> so that was the level of my expertise as well exactly um okay with that we will we'll put that behind and uh we will move now and pause for the lightning round sound effect and i will uh turn it to tim to talk about the two individuals who uh have been indicted as co-conspirators of virgil griffith who we talked about in the last episode so I think this may be the end of the Virgil Griffith series that we've been running on the podcast for the last year or so. But um, as our listeners will remember, Virgil Griffith is the person that we have affectionately referred to as the crypto bro who uh, went to North Korea to put on a training about cryptocurrency. And I think on the, the last episode, we talked about um, some of the bad emails that uh, showed up at the sentencing in, in which he was sentenced within the guidelines, which was pretty pretty unusual. I think he got 63 months. Um, but the emails were kind of bad enough that you started to understand why he would get a sentence like that. Some of the other people who were both recipients and sending the emails, encouraging and helping him plan that trip to uh, to North Korea were indicted and their indictments were unsealed uh, almost immediately after the sentencing. Um, one was a Spanish citizen, the other one was a citizen of the UK. Uh, the, the, at the time of the unsealing, DOJ did a press release that described um, what they believed to have been the, the conduct. It was really pretty much the same conduct we talked about in sentencing with Virgil Griffith. And uh, we, it remains to be seen whether these individuals will actually be 
extradited and, and really prosecuted for these crimes. But I think that the, the message is very clear that, uh, that DOJ is taking this uh, very seriously. And, uh, you know, my, my guess is that if, if those individuals were to travel to certain countries and certainly to the United States, they, they actually could wind, wind up back here in, in New York to, to face these charges. Right. I, I mean, I think that the practical impact is that these people are never coming to the United States again um or you know because they will be arrested and uh and that may be quite frankly the only way that they would ever be arrested because as a general matter even for close us allies like the uk uh extraditing on a on a conspiracy to violate iepa charge is 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 difficult extraordinarily difficult if not impossible because uh of course you know under the principles of reciprocity that uh are central to extradition proceedings um, most regard sanctions laws as being a matter of foreign policy and aren't going to recognize the U.S. foreign policy in, in criminalizing U.S. foreign policy, essentially, if, especially if it deviates at all from the home countries. So I think that the odds that anybody is ever getting extradited uh, here from the U.K. or Spain are very, very low. To me, this feels like a cleanup measure where they wanted to just unseal these indictments and get a little additional exposure to the case that had just concluded against Mr. Griffith after he was sentenced. Um, it is notable, though, I would say. So two things. Number one, this does also feel perhaps with a, uh, at a, uh, of a piece with where we started, which is sanctions of the new FCPA and taking the uh, taking the opportunity to perhaps add on and get a little more visibility and a little more notoriety in these countries in particular, which I'm sure we're reporting on this uh, when it was announced, um, that, you know, beware getting crosswise with with U.S. sanctions here. And don't, you know, don't feel like you have impunity to plan a cryptocurrency and blockchain conference with a, you know, with a, a rogue embargoed nation like North Korea, which is exactly what these two gentlemen are accused of having done. Uh, and recruiting Mr. Griffith to speak at it. And so um, to Tim's point, I think it, it, it alludes to some emails and other things that seem to be pretty brazen in the disregard for um, the notion that there's there was anything that they had to worry about in terms of uh, U.S. sanctions and, in fact, th discussed the idea that they could obscure what they were doing to make sure that they avoided detection by U.S. authorities. So, you know, put all that together and it's 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 probably pretty obvious why this indictment was these indictments were unsealed at this point but again whether we ever hear anything about this uh down the road again and to tim's point this is probably the the final the final exclamation point on 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 this chapter of uh embargoed discussion of mr griffith and his case and his uh co-conspirators but i i we did want to sort of uh you know call attention to this because it was it was rather noteworthy that they they did sort of take this DOJ did take this final step. Yes, a sad day. Sad day. So um, for for these two gentlemen in particular. So and for and for our listeners because and for I, our I listeners know everyone weeping, loves here exactly who are weeping over Please this because they say we want more. more North Korea sanctions enforcement exactly. on embargo. That is, I think, the number one email request that we get is more North Korea sanctions enforcement. Just burning up our email and our Twitter accounts at all times. It's so, trending. Um, it's trending on Twitter right now. Our 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 interns have too many tweets to respond to and our our, our PR people too many tweets to respond to on more North Korea uh, enforcement content. So now we we're gonna give them a break, which is I'm sure they'll appreciate. So um, with that, let's pivot to the final topic of the day, which is Nicaragua and an interesting article that just appeared in the New York Times this week regarding uh, what are apparently have have been recent overtures from the Ortega family uh, reaching out to senior U.S. administration officials um, inquiring as to whether there might be a deal to be struck to get some sanctions relief, both I think probably I don't want to get the order wrong. I think first for the the family itself, which appears to be suffering under the sanctions, and second for the country of Nicaragua uh, 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 as a as a general matter. Um, in light of the fact, it appears that one of the um, one of the country's obviously primary backers, allies, benefactors has been Russia, and I think they are now at the point of perhaps writing off Russia as being able to be much help to them in the near term, 
given the state of Russia's um, withering economy and the increasing sanctions in the war. Uh, and so um, apparently, you know, again, uh, the the favored son of the Nicaraguan president uh, apparently reached out. There was supposed to be perhaps a, a, um, an, a meeting that was to take place, which pre- which doesn't appear to have happened. But in any event, it seems that many um, insiders and observers, including some who were who were still part of the inner circle in Nicaragua until very recently, um, said, yeah, have confirmed, yes, the family is really suffering under the U.S. sanctions. The country is really suffering under U.S. sanctions. There is growing unrest both within the government and in the country um, that might perhaps move the needle on um, the regime's willingness to deal with the U.S. Perhaps what is what has been what has been reported is perhaps they would be willing to release political prisoners and to address some of the um, more um, egregious human rights abuses that they have a- engaged in and that has been a centerpiece of the U.S. sanctions since they were imposed um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and so an interesting wrinkle, I think, a- along with the idea, this also mentioned in the article that, and this has been reported elsewhere, that the U.S. has been dis- in discussions with uh, Nicaragua and in particular perhaps with the Maduro inner circle about uh, a similar topic about some perhaps entertaining sanctions relief and um, not surprisingly with the with the increased um, you know strains on the global oil supply uh, you know Venezuela would seem to be obviously a um, uh, perhaps a an elegant solution to that if there could be some um, common ground reach as to how that would uh, be structured and what the relief would look like and what would be uh, garnered in return. Uh, for the U.S. on the U.S. side. So anyway, uh, a topic we haven't touched on recently and an interesting intersection of many of many of our favorite topics. So we wanted to close with that today. And so I throw it to you, Mr. O'Toole, for your thoughts. Three quick, hopefully quick points. I mean, first is when my, my daughter was much younger, she was a very little kid. One of the things she used to say whenever she wasn't getting her way was that you're not honoring my priorities. And I just pictured Loriana Ortega kind of going to the U.S. government and essentially throwing that kind of fit in saying that, because I think that at least was the image that I was left with when I read that story. Because um, I think that, that the truth is that the sanctions are now hitting the Ortega family hard, so they actually care about them. Um, whatever happened to the economy in Nicaragua, I doubt was going to have much and, of an and their gri- And their grip on power may be growing more right. tenuous as so, a result, which so is they, why they want to do this. Yeah. Right. They, they want us to honor their priorities. But second, I mean, this is another all roads lead to Moscow type story because their biggest benefactor was Russia and Russia is having a hard time paying its own bills right now. And it's certainly not looking to pay Nicaragua's bills, I suspect. And so Nicaragua needs to look elsewhere. One place that it would have looked, I think, previously and has looked in the past has been Venezuela, but Venezuela is having its own issues. But at the same time, Venezuela is in discussions, at least as I understand it. And I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, it's in discussions with the U.S., reportedly in discussions with the U.S., to lift the sanctions in exchange for some sort of um, deal with the Maduro government. It sounds like from the article that the you know there may be a grand bargain that's being worked on, in part because Nicaragua can't turn to Venezuela. It, it might be you know wrap itself into the Venezuela whatever deal is going on there to lift sanctions in exchange for some sort of better changed behavior. Um, so those are the three thoughts that I had when I read that. We'll see if that pans out, but um, just the biggest thing that I've left with was kind yeah, of the yeah no good. Good points, and I think I will end on this, which is interestingly there was a there was a um, there was a picture in the article of young Mr. Ortega in China with a senior Chinese official not that long ago, um, and so obviously China, another sort of lurking benefactor for Nicaragua, and closer ties certainly are trying to be built there. I think by the Nicaraguan government. Um, interestingly, it, that was in connection with Nicaragua's decision to. Um, not recognize the independence of Taiwan <laughs> any longer uh, and to sort of kowtow to China's wishes there in and curry favor in exchange for, um, you know, further support from China's government in Nicaragua. But it does not seem at the moment that that is going to be enough to sort of salvage 
what is a what seems to be a spiraling situation there economically and otherwise and so agree that uh, perhaps we will we will certainly be keeping an eye on this and if there is some grand bargain to be um to be struck and and if it wraps in venezuela and nicaragua together um that would truly be fascinating um you know who knows if that is is really achievable at the moment but um just again all roads do lead back to moscow in some ways these days but i think we wanted to end on a a slightly different note um because quite frankly we spend too much time talking about russia and we would like to talk about just about anything else at this point so well we're, we're talking about roads outside of russia true that's true back there that's true and so with that, I think that's all we have for today. I think we have we are going to come in comfortably under the hour mark. So a successful episode from that standpoint. Uh, we will be back, uh, I think, at the end of the month. So this will be up sometime uh, next week, uh, probably middle of the week around uh, May 10th, 11th. Uh, we will be back toward the end of the month, probably just before Memorial Day in the States here for another episode. Uh, and uh until we do, I hope everybody stays safe and stays sanctions-free. Stay sanctions-free, everybody. Looking forward to see, seeing my friends in Germany next week and probably when the pod comes out. So see you exactly. then. Exactly. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. This podcast was produced by HeartCast Media.